You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Hello and welcome to the Essential Apple Podcast, a show where we cover the last 7 to 10 days in the world of Apple news, reviews, rumours, roundup, gossip, tech and, well, basically... Anything else that catches our eye, this is the Essential Apple Podcast. Hello everybody, it is another show and we're recording this the evening before WWDC, so we're not going to talk much about WWDC, it's uh, obviously an elephant in the room so we are going to mention it, but uh, we won't go on about it for ages because otherwise by the time I put this show out it'll all be redundant, but uh, to talk about the other pieces of news this week, I have with me Guy Searle from the My Mac Podcast. Hello, Guy. Hello. How are you there? I'm all right. Thank you very much. And we have Roger Harmon, uh, the uh, My Mac contributor and reviewer and a member of the Tucson Mac user group. How are you, Roger? I'm trying to stay cool. Yeah, I have to say that here it is quite... Uh, by your standards, it's probably not hot, but it's distinctly sticky and quite unpleasant. Yeah, we don't allow sticky here in the desert. <laughs> no. One, I know. You have one advantage, don't you? You have, it's a damn dry heat. Yeah, I was going to exactly. say, is is there such a thing as humidity there in Arizona? I don't think there is. Oh, yeah. In uh, in August uh, and September, we have the monsoon season. So we get uh, a lot of humidity coming up from the Gulf Coast. So that's our rainy season. Very good. Yes, I should think that could be quite unpleasant, I would have thought. Well, it cools it off. It it cools off. Well, that's that's something, I suppose, because here at the minute, I don't know what the actual temperature is, but uh, the humidity feels like it's about 95%, right? Well, you guys are on an island. (laughs) Yeah. That happens. Yeah, that is true. (laughs) That is true. But today it feels really... Maybe it's a big island, but yeah. It's really clammy um, and really quite unpleasant. So, uh... Well, uh, where where should we go from here? There's quite a lot of stories. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. There's quite a lot of stories. So, uh, I, you know, rather than ramble on about not very much, I guess let's get the WWDC out of the way. Shall we? Let's just let's just say. Um, so, uh, let's do a sort of two quick predictions a piece and leave it at that. Shall we? Uh, do you want to take it first, guy? What do you want to say about WWDC? Ah. Uh... You know, doing predictions on something like WWDC is, is really kind of tough because no matter what you say, you, you, you look like an idiot after the, uh, the, the actual stuff is released. Um, what I would like to see is a new Mac Mini. Uh, I don't think it's going to happen, but I would love to see a new Mac Mini. And some kind of um, general update on where they are with the Mac Pro. Yep, that's good. That's good. I, I'm with you on the Mac Mini, but I don't think we'll see a Mac Mini. I'll, I'll be fair. I don't think we're going to see much uh, of hardware at all. I mean, let's face it. W- it's, not a, it's, it's, not a hardware, it's not a hardware show. No, it's not really a hardware show. They do occasionally show something. It would be nice if we had an update on what's happening with the Mac Pro. That would be nice. Um, Since it was actually supposed to be released this year, and now okay. they're saying, no, no, not till next year. Not Thank till next you. Year. So um, that, that might be nice. Um, and, uh, well, if they've got anything kind of unsurprising in the can that they might give us a preview of, but that's not really Apple style. I think this is all going to be software, to be honest. Uh, Roger, what about you? 
Well, I'd like to see them say, we've improved Siri. They did hire uh, Apple. You, 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 you can wish they'd say that. Yeah, well, I wish they would not only say it, but they'd do it. You know, they, Apple, <laughs> they hired uh, Google's AI chief, John, whatever his last name is. Yeah. And uh, so uh, it may be too soon for him yeah, to. I, I was going to say, I think that it'd probably take him a little while to, um, you know, to make a difference there. I'm pretty sure AI is not the sort of thing where you come into the new job and uh, by the end of the week you go, no, look, you're doing it all wrong. What we need to do is this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And if he said that, then that takes even more time. So, yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, I, I use Siri so little that, that, you know, people's endless complaints about how rubbish Siri is kind of wash over me. I'll be honest. Um, well, I keep keep giving her a chance and under the theory that, the more you use it, the better it gets because it's, you know, training. But uh, I know I, well, I I did one uh, message to you last night because I was at a concert. So I just uh, used Siri on an email. And then I this morning I saw what the results were. Which <laughs> yeah, not- was a, I kind of gathered that you'd probably dictated it because it was not, um, it was not exactly 100% what I expected you to have uh, written. I can't remember what it said exactly, but there was a, there was a blatant sort of Siriism in the middle. Yeah. It? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm not really all that fired up by all this, um, you know, this voice interactive stuff anyway. So may, maybe that's why I'm not really all that bothered. And I, I've never been particularly fired up by it. Anyway, tomorrow, Uncle Tim and the crew will tell us all about what they're really going to do. And uh, I'm sure we can. <laughs> Next podcast, we'll have lots to talk about, I'm sure. But uh, there we are. So uh, let, let's get let's get that out of the way then. Um, related to that, uh, I've got two stories in here, um, and I don't think we'll waste long on them either. But uh, dark mode for i uh, Mac OS ten fourteen and iOS twelve. Uh, this is from uh, BGR, um, and I've seen it elsewhere. There's a rumor flying around, of probably a fairly well substantiated rumor. Um, we didn't have many rumors this year. I'm glad to say. Um, but there is a rumour that there will be a dark mode for a full dark mode for the Mac and probably to go with it for iOS. Now, I know dark modes seem to be really, really fashionable and everybody seems to think that the, you know, the black interface is the way to go. I'll be honest, um, Adobe have switched to that as their default for the Creative Suite apps and uh, I don't like it at all. Luckily in Adobe, you can still switch back to a pale. Um, I think I think a lot I think a lot of it has to do with the environment that you're working in. If, if you're working in like you know a cube farm, well lit office, uh, dark mode could probably help you focus on the bits that you're working on at any given time. Whereas if you know you're just sitting in in you know your basement or whatever with your Mac, and you know there's not as much light, then yeah, you know do the the regular mode that we've known and loved since. 1999-2000 is probably good enough. Yeah, well, you know, a lot of people seem to be clamoring for it. So, you know. Or yeah, they, damn if, kids. <laughs> well, if, they, <laughs> if they introduce it, fine. I don't have a problem with it as long as it's a, an option and not. the de- Well, I mean, it's, there's no problem with dark mode being a default. As I don't long care as if it's the default. It's relatively or, easy to switch yeah, back. I don't mind if it's a default or an option or what. I just, as long as it doesn't kind of get rammed in my face, whether I like it or not. Um Adobe, as I say, 
made Creative Suite a dark mode by default, but you just go into the preferences and you, there are four or five yeah. levels of whiteness you can choose. And I just put mine back to the old-fashioned, uh, you know, white interface. Works for me. Well, Thank where was, wasn't wasn't there like a utility that you could you could set the Mac OS to dark mode? Well, the, the the Mac OS at the minute has a sort of mini dark mode, but all it does is make the menu bar and the dock dark. What they're talking about here is, you know, where where all your pop out menus and everything, rather than being the pale grey that they are now, would be you know, black with white out text and all the apps as well. Probably there there is, there is an app that can do some, but not all of it. I don't. Now, where where is that in uh, preferences? I don't see that. Oh. Well, that's the, isn't that the, the, uh, you think of the one that cuts down the blue light at night? Uh, no, no. No, that, that's a different, that, that's. There we go. Uh, it's in, it's in general, um, in general, underneath the appearance, there's one that says use a dark menu bar and dock. Oh, right, right, right. I that, see is that, as, that is as dark as it goes. Okay. Um, they're talking about a full dark mode. Uh, this is fairly well substantiated, I think, because. Uh, who was it reported it, Mister Mister Troughton? Is it Troughton Smith? Um, yeah, him of the him of him of the uh, code disassembly um, fame. Uh, so there you go. N- none of us are particularly jazzed about that one way or the other. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, Phil Schiller will come out and say, "Can't innovate my dark mode." <laughs> yeah, look, we've got a dark mode. I think he'd be totally ridiculed over that one. Um, <laughs> that one, you know. Uh, and the other one is Apple plans to un- unlock NFC abilities for four generations of iPhone. Um, I've seen this several places as well. I think this one's a little bit more sketchy, but that wouldn't surprise me, that one. Um, when Apple uh, first you know, introduced the, the NFC chip, which is they use for Apple Pay, and I think that's about it, isn't it? Um, the... You know, there was a lot of people jibbing that NFC can do a lot more, but that's the Apple way, isn't it? You know, introduce it and do one thing with it. And then when you're sure that's working how you want, unlock other features. Yeah. Well, um, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Roger. Well, yeah, I think there's a lot of things um, like Bluetooth speakers is one that I see a lot where you just tap your Android phone on the speaker to pair it. So that would be a nice uh, feature for your iOS devices to pair things easier. And but in this article towards the end, it's saying that uh, they say that NFC has got a limited adoption even on the Android platform. So this might be a shot in the arm for NFC technology with Apple uh, letting a, the their developers uh, run with it. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I know when the NFC chips were first put in, there was there was some grumbling from developers. I think that. Uh, you know they they were very restricted there's a lot of talk in this in this article about um hotels you know hotels using smart uh locks so that rather than giving you a key to your room they could um enable your phone to be the key to the hotel room that sort of thing um it strikes me as the sort of thing apple would do you know um just introduce something more the technology is there um and just gradually allow um developers more freedom with it that's that's well, a lot of it you know apple gets a lot of flack for not having certain um implement implement uh, can't even say the word implement ah help me implementations, implementations. Yeah. thank you of of 
various, uh, not even really so much the technology, but some of the various things that, that the technology can do, that they're always kind of late in bringing these, these new features to, to light. Uh, but typically when they wait, it's either because it's discovered that there are some serious downsides to the technology or uh, they wait until it's a little more mature so that they can get it right. Yeah, that is true. Yeah, I can see uh, how NFC could work with HomeKit for, you know, unlocking your door at home, for example. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I don't know if I would, you know, I don't think I would use NFC to unlock my house because it just seems like there is so much potential for disaster there. Yeah, that, <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm not keen on smart locks or, you know, uh, at all, any of that sort of stuff. Well, NFC is very, very short range, though, so... Yes, it is. It's very short range, but uh, apparently it's not that difficult to hack um, if you know what you're doing. Uh, but I'm sure Apple would probably introduce more than um, more than just the NFC if they were going to do that. But Yeah, maybe they put a security level or security layer on it that nobody else has. Well, I, it would be... <sighs> I guess it'd be quite nice if you could, if they could make it work so that it used um, Touch ID or Face ID. Well, I'd like, you know, to have, you know, walk in from my garage and to the, you know, door between the garage and the house and just, you know, get within a foot of it and have the door unlocks when my, you know, hands are full. Yeah, yeah. Well, that would be, you know. But anyway, there we go. That's all speculation at the moment. But I can see that being something that, you know, I could see that being something that Apple would unlock because they do. That is how they work, isn't it? They've done that sort of thing several times before. Where, um, well, you know, for example, in just in the first place, allowing third-party apps and then allowing apps to run in the background, and and they let these things build up one step at a time on the whole, rather than rather than launching themselves into it headlong. Um, so there we go. Uh, we've got what else have we got um these i've got a couple here that are somewhat more speculative so these are probably uh worth a little bit more chatter uh mashable had an opinion piece it's time for apple's next act of courage to kill the macbook keyboard um i don't know if you boys have read this one have you have you taken a look at this one no but i mean i've i've heard i've heard a lot of people say the same thing to, to you know get rid of the butterfly keyboard well, um, they're, they're here they're talking about actually killing physical keyboards altogether and to replace, um, you know, the whole physical keyboard idea with a with effectively a touch screen. Okay, how, and how much? I mean, you get no you get no feedback from that. Well, they're talking obviously they're talking about saying that if you were to do this, haptics would be the key to making it, um, you know, really viable. Um, it just you know what that that's just a power killer. There there's. Yeah. You know, the, the nice thing about having physical keys is if you're not touching it, it's not using any power. That's so true. <laughs> that is true. Know, whereas if you have if you have some kind of of light generated keyboard, well, that's that's always you know unless they set something up to where it it doesn't actually show up and, until it senses your hands or or you know it just seems like why would you do this? You know, I, I've tried, I've tried optical keyboards for lack of a better term on, you know, a, a relatively large surface, like an iPad and yeah, you can get through it, especially once you get some, you know, muscle memory as to where everything is on a non-physical keyboard, but it just seems like it's more trouble than it's worth. I, I, I read this article and it, it's prompted in part because guess what? Apple have a pipe to, um, you know, build a device that uses um, 
you know, which is a clamshell right. and appears to have a display and a touch, uh, a touchscreen component. Um, but then why would Apple not patent that? That would be, you know, that would be foolish not yeah. to patent it, whether you had any plans to actually use it or not. Although <laughs> there are, there are, um, there's a really clever figure here talking about, uh, all right, rather exaggeratedly, but showing how you could use a force touch kind of technology to make it work. Um, I I was thinking that, like you, if you were to do that, you, you're effectively running going to be running a large iPad screen. All the time. All yep. the time. Uh, of course, you could. it could be e-ink. You could have an e-ink display because most of the time what you're probably going to be displaying is just a keyboard. Um, yeah, I think Apple had some kind of patent on something similar to that uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, yes, I think they did. Um, I I kind of see where they're coming from, right? But like a lot of these people, um, sometimes when they write these opinion pieces, they get carried away by the coolness factor. Yeah, cool rather than it, how right, rather than how practical it might be. Um, because. I, you know, they're saying, well, you wouldn't be constrained to, you know, the physical set of keys. You could change the keyboard layout. You could have other tools in there. You could do, and the, all that is true. All that is very true. And it's like, you know, how, just think how malleable your iPhone screen is. Imagine if your keyboard laptop was like that. Okay. Well, you know what? Look at, look at all the, the pushback against something almost exactly like that in the the newer MacBook Pros with that strip that that's above yep. the keys. Yeah. You know, people saw that and it's now been a couple of years since that's been out and you don't hear people defending it because not many people like it. So why would you want an entire keyboard like that? Yeah, you know, basically you're talking about the whole thing being the touchpad. Right. Yeah. Um I obviously they're talking here about about patents that Apple's got um, one of the the things that sprung to mind when I uh, read this was um, not only are they perhaps getting wrapped up in the coolness factor of it, um, but yes, I think they're forgetting some of the... Of course, some of it is to do, again, with the criticism of the but butterfly keyboard, um, because Apple have had a patent for a, to improve the butterfly keyboard that involves a load of valves and brushes and seals and things to try and... But doesn't that take away from the, the... I mean, the only reason why they went with a keyboard like this rather than a standard one was because they could make it that much thinner. Exactly. And, you know, before, and before we go anywhere else, why the hell do laptops and all this need to be any more thin than they already are? Because Sir Johnny thinks that's the way we want them. Well, Sir Johnny is, I think, is full of crap. <laughs> you know, I don't think we need, you know, friggin' laptops that you can fit into a postal envelope. I, you know, I, I just don't get where the, the technology is going with that. You know, you, you start, it, it becomes almost detrimental in and of itself because the thinner you make it, the thinner you have to make the batteries, the, the harder it is to have components in there that can easily be assembled. So you're increasing the cost of manufacturing. You're, uh, you're not really reducing the amount of e-waste because almost the whole thing is, is recyclable at this point anyway. But you the, the also, you're increasing the problems, aren't you? I mean, the butterfly keyboard. Right. I mean, people moaned, started moaning. With, as soon when, as it came out, when the MacBook came out. Well, people started moaning when they went to a unibody aluminium Mac and then they said you can't just replace the keyboard. Because in the older machines, the keyboard was a lift-out component. Right. So people well, started she, complaining well, she, then. 
Um, yeah. And now you have to actually have literally the whole half of the machine replaced because the keyboard is attached to the top half of the shell and the batteries are apparently welded into the shell. So if your keyboard goes, you practically have to have a whole new computer. A whole new computer. Now, the the, the, the biggest problem, it seems, with the, the butterfly keyboards is, you know, dust and dirt and all the rest of that get underneath it because you, you have to have both sides of that keyboard depressed in order for it to register as a press. So if one side is blocked or, or if you know, one or either side isn't working quite the way it's supposed to, you can hit that thing till the cows come home and you're either not going to get anything or you're suddenly going to get a string of 14,000 W's right across your screen. Yeah. So the, the only fix that I can really think of would be, you know, it would, they, it, the, the entire keyboard itself outside of the part that you're pressing would have to be sealed so that nothing can get in there. Yeah, which is which is why they've got these um, some patents for ones where the keys. Oh, is that what you're talking about doing? Well, the the, the patent for the ones with um, with these sort of gaskets and brushes and things is effectively sealing up the the key mechanism individually. Each key would be within its own sort of um, gasket sealed compartment, which seems huh. to me like an awful lot of effort. I are smarter than I thought. I read the article. I could see what they were talking about. But I was also I was thinking, even if we accept the practicality of typing on a no movement, you know, glass image keyboard, e-ink or whatever it is, and uh, I think there's going to be an awful lot of people who would tell you that is a bloody awful idea in and of for itself. Good um, and then there's the cost issue. And then for me, there's also the durability issue, you know. Um, well, you know, in theory, uh, a screen for a keyboard would or could practically last forever because there's no there's no moving parts. You know, the only thing you would actually have to worry about would be the screen itself. Yeah, exactly. possibly with with burn in. But there are ways to avoid that, too. You you basically could take each key and every you know, hundred milliseconds or so, it, it slides a pixel or two. You know that it would be imperceptible to the human eye, but it would be enough to prevent screen burn. It well, there's that. Or and, you know, I think if you're going to do it, you'd have to start with an e-ink screen because otherwise, I just think the the power yeah. costs would be too high. Imagine trying to run your laptop screen and you know your higher power processors yeah. and your SSD and all the rest of it and yeah. uh, uh, effectively a uh, an iPad screen. Yeah. And it, well, it's basically, it's a bad idea. You know, when you get right there, it's like, okay, all right, why are you doing this? Stop it. Just right. stop well, doing that. Why, right. Where that, however, part of that came across to me as perhaps making a little more sense. If we move on to the next story or the related story, which is the Apple Star project. Now, I, I don't know if you've heard about this. This has been bandied about for a while now. Apple have a project called the Star Project, um, or N84, um, in some in some reports, uh, and it's been variously ascribed as being uh, some kind of iPhone, uh, some kind of uh, ARM-based MacBook, um, and the sort of latest chuck into the pot is: is it? Um, or could it actually be an ARM-powered hybrid device? So uh, somewhere between a laptop and an iPad, uh, but a completely new product family for Apple, 
Uh, and because the leaks and information that they've picked up uh, say that that prototypes have been made, um, it has a touchscreen, a SIM card slot, a GPS, a compass, is water-resistant, but also it runs EFI. Um, so there you go. Uh, if some sort of new hybrid device was in the works, then perhaps you could imagine that being a sort of clamshell device and having a non-physical keyboard. Well, maybe, but the the one thing it won't be is a Mac. You know, this whole no. speculation that they're going to move the Mac OS to ARM, you know, foot, or not foot, but, you know, just a whole barrel moving from... Lock, stock, and barrel. Yeah. ARM, yeah, yeah. Makes absolutely no sense. Uh, one of the things, one of the reasons why they moved to x86 in the first place was to to help kind of build up uh, developer support for the Mac uh, that they weren't getting with PowerPC or uh, Motorola's uh, 68K chips. And it's worked like a charm. There are more Macintosh applications today than there ever have been. They are selling more Macintosh, even though even though the Mac isn't the the you know the the number one focus of Apple as it used to be when that was essentially their only product. It's still they are still selling more computers today than they ever have. That ever is true. in the history of the company. So why take something that is working and completely change it up just for the sake of changing it up? Now, I could see them taking uh, ARM processors and creating a new computing standard. Uh, basically, and you know, because iOS and the Mac OS share a somewhat common code base, they could take uh, a, a new GUI that they've created and kind of work that into iOS, but have it only work for these small computers or these small laptops. Because for 99% of the users out there, something like iOS is good enough for everything that they do every single day. And Very the, other, the other one, two, 5% of, and I'm using air quotes here, pro users could still have their big truck, the Mac OS, with all of the stuff that's there. You know, I mean, at what point are are we are are we seriously contemplating the success story of what is today's Mac and changing that up to something that is going to make it probably less successful? I mean, I, I, I don't get why they would do that. I have I have a, a thought on this, but I'm, I'm going to ask Roger to come in and and see what Roger has to say about it, um, and then I'll. I'll tell you what I think is a possibility. Um, you know, we well, haven't had many leaks this year, Guy. Um, and what leaks we have, or sorry, what rumours we have had have been only the sort of thing that I could think up and you could think up, you know, nothing that special. So, uh, Roger, what what, how, what do you think about this whole um, possible hybrid device? Well, I think uh, it could be a product for the education market to combat the um, Google uh, Chromebook. The Chromebooks, yeah. So something that's always online always has to be connected, like the Chromebooks. Well, I, I, they may not do go that far, but if they could bring the cost of uh, of this device down to where education institutions could afford it, then they could, uh, you know, try to get back uh, to their prominence in the education market. I, yeah, I could yeah, see that. that, that's yeah, I could see that. Um, I don't know how many people remember the e-mate. I mean, that was that was. Um, Johnny's that was the Newton that. device. It was based on Newton. It was yes. So of course it. Yeah, went, the e-mate, it, e-mate 2000, I think. 
Um, was it? I don't. I don't know. Was it? Did it have any numbers, or was it just called the E Mate? Because it, it it didn't last long, did it? Because when then when uh, Steve killed Jobs the E-mate, came back, it, yeah, the whole thing went out the window. Uh, I it was it was amazing looking for its time. It was and a very interesting piece. It got a lot of um, praise at the time. Uh, it was a sort of, in some ways, a sort of forerunner of the one laptop per child idea. But um, I I I have a sort of rumbling of a of a of an idea that if we're talking about a high some type of hybrid device it's got fe it's got touchscreen which could be this you know not could be a touchscreen touchscreen or it could be this non physical keyboard um and it's technically being uh, touted as a new device family and uh i'm like you with i'm with you guy i can't really see what benefit they would get from switching i'm not saying they won't because apple have done it before for their own reasons but i don't see any benefits in switching the mac os to arm not at this point no no, but the mac os and they are selling more computers you're right um but the mac os is really becoming i believe a niche field for as you say air quotes pro users and i could see there being a device inserted in between ios and the mac os and becoming a sort of you know the consumer laptop device um and leaving the mac os very much as a premium device for people who really need it and to insert um well a consumer range of arm possibly partially ios powered devices i mean you know is that what this marzipan thing is all about which is was Simon, have you ever heard of the Remix OS? Yes, I have. I have a Remix Mini. Right. Which they just they just came out with the with the one model and the company is now out of business because they, they basically tried to take it in so many different directions that, that there was no direction to the company and it died. But the, the basic idea was to take the Android OS, give it a GUI, make it look like a, a, a regular kind of desktop OS and, you know, make it small, make it cheap, make it affordable. And they did it. I mean, this this Remix Mini, it's got it's got, I think, two gigs of RAM. It's got uh, just like an SD card slot, minimum amount of storage on the inside, Ethernet port, couple of USB ports and HDMI out. And that was it. And it cost about 70 bucks. And when you plugged it in and attached it to really any monitor that could accept HDMI, you had a desktop OS. All of almost I, I can't think of any Android apps that I tried that it didn't work uh, because I'm on Microsoft's uh, 365 platform. They offer free versions of uh, mobile, you know, mobile office apps from, you know, Microsoft Office, all in these mobile apps. And that worked. So I had I had all of the Microsoft apps running on this thing. Uh, Pretty much all of, you know, any Android game that was out there, anything that you wanted to do that most people would want to do with a computer. I could do with this thing that was barely bigger than than a deck of cards and was really super cheap. And uh, I've talked about it before, but this product really blew me away. I was I was stunned at how well it worked for something that was essentially not even a beta product. I think that the Remix Mini was more almost of an almost like an alpha product, but it really for what it was, it worked well and it would have worked for nearly everyone that uses a computer out there. And when you're done, you slip it into your pocket and you go on to wherever it is you want to go to. 
Yeah, I, I, that's just, you know, that is my thought, that if Apple are going to try and slide something in, which is, I, I know, a more upscale, shall we say, or more, I don't know, it's hard to say because, you know, lots of people talk about iPads as if they're limited. They're not limited at all. No. But there are certain things that they do not do. Right, and I, that's, I, that's that's not limit. That's not a limitation. That's just how they. No, were it's designed. just how it's designed to be. I'm right. I'm just thinking if Apple want to, if they want, and kick, they, kick, kick that up a bit. Well, yeah, if they want to try and satisfy the people who say they want a cheaper laptop but don't want to go, you know, for a full premium Apple Mac OS laptop, is there a slot there between the iPad? or the larger iPhones, and thing. I mean, as you say, Chrome OS seems to have done reasonably well. Um, I could see that being a possibility, especially if it's it's something more powerful, quote-unquote, than, than an iPad because it's got FE and runs on ARM. Yeah, I would agree with that. So, you know, who knows? But that could be an exciting development. Right, I'll tell you what, shall we take a five-minute break? And uh, normally we'd go over to John Nemo's hardware store here, but... Uh, it was John's wife's birthday, and uh, he's been off traveling and having fun with her. So there's no store. No you? excuse. No, no excuse. No excuse whatsoever, John. Uh, so we're going to take a five-minute break so we can all get a fresh cup of coffee, and uh, then we'll come back. Is that all right, guys? Sounds okay. good. Okay. Hello and good evening. This is Gads for the MyMac podcast. And we know you have your pick of high-quality, downloadable audio content, and we appreciate that you choose ours. Quite right, Old Bean. This is Guy, and we're here to say that the MyMac podcast is the right choice to make. Intelligent, cultured, and downloaded by only the finest and most educated people. Indeed. In fact... We restrict our delightful missives to only those best suited... Sky, I can't go on with this. Who are we kidding? The MyMac podcast is probably one of the most accessible shows about OS X and iOS there is. Gaz, we're trying to up our reputation here. Oh, shut it. Listen, folks, tired of tech podcasts that talk over your head and go on too long taking themselves so seriously you'd think they were the ones making the product then you should listen to the mymac.com podcast at least three good chuckles per segment if my math is right that's about 10 laughs per show right because three times three is 10 sometimes i really wonder about you guy no need to wonder where to find the podcast just go to itunes and search for my mac subscribe and jump into the fun you know we're part of the stoplight network and there are a lot of important people there well we did say we hardly know anyone important though there was that time i was less than 30 feet away from the was and i could have sworn we made eye contact most likely he was having stomach cramps yeah, that would explain why he was doubled over at the time Check out the Stoplight Network and the MyMac.com podcast. Enjoy it over a copper. And welcome back. Uh, well, me and Guy have been dominating the picks, so I'm going to ask Roger to pick a story and uh, lead us into it. Take it away, Roger. Well, you may have seen that the uh, FBI made a... Um 
public service announcement that everybody should reboot <laughs> their routers. However, when you uh, when you dig deeply into it, uh, you'll find that uh, there's two kind of uh, details that uh, the clickbait community hasn't really uh, emphasized. One is it seems to be most of the activity of these Russian hackers who are apparently uh, getting into your routers. Most of it's happening in the Ukraine. Now, I'm sure that the FBI feels that there's a, an imminent threat because there's nothing, uh, you know, geographic about this this malware. So it could happen anywhere in the world, including the United States. So basically, the the story is that uh, uh, these Russian hackers supposedly have uh, created this malware, which the FBI calls a VPN filter, and uh, it can use your uh, your router for nefarious purposes. And so rebooting your router actually uh, doesn't really uh, take care of the entire threat. What you really need to do is check with your router company and see if they have an update to the firmware for the router, which eliminates the threat entirely. So that is something um, that you need to do. Uh, There's a report from a, a division of Cisco and uh, when you go down to the very, very bottom of that report, you find that the, um, and I'm trying to find it right here, the routers that are uh, affected are uh, three Linksys devices, uh, three Microtech uh, routers, about uh, six uh, Netgear devices, and uh, three QNAP devices, and one TP-Link device. So, I'm sure we'll put that link in the show notes. You can check and see if your device is among those. And so those are the ones you really need to look at and uh, bug your uh, so your uh, router manufacturer for the firmware update that will completely eradicate this threat. Okay. Um, I guess the well, other... Wouldn't, wouldn't the password take care of that too? I can say, does this, does this attack rely on routers using the default password because that's the commonest attack on routers isn't it that they ship with you know admin admin or admin password as the as the default um it's the default password as the default you know uh, login which of course you know you're you're often told you you you're always told you should probably change but loads of people don't right um is that is that um do, do they say, Roger, if if a you know if it relies on the default password as a way to break in, or is it using? Uh, I think it doesn't. Um, I'm trying to to uh, scan the article, but all the articles I've read on this, I didn't see that. It's somehow they're getting in on a port and um, affecting the router, and I don't think they're having to rely on the uh, default passwords. Okay. Or on the other hand, if you had a default password and you set up a new password, it's already in there. Oh, yes. So. Yeah, that's too, yes, uh, I, I understand that. But, um, yeah, this is quite a long article, and I'm, I'm trying to scan through it. I can't see anything right at the moment. Um, obviously, the, the standard advice, of course, is don't use the default passwords, particularly, right. on, <laughs> particularly on things like routers, which are effectively your defense between the outside world and your LAN. Um, and, yeah, okay, yeah. Uh, Right, I, I see you're right. Doesn't I mean it's a limited number of routers. Uh, obviously, you should everybody should take care. Um, I guess if you're if you're concerned, follow the follow the instructions. Um, I do see in the top here though they say, and so this is possibly um, 
one of the malwares which was mentioned earlier uh, or end of last year where it has the ability to actually brick the device um right which right is, it rewrites the firmware yeah it seems that it's never been used to do that but it has the ability to effectively kill the router um there we go um well uh, okay yeah so it's, it's not a huge number of devices in reality is it, it i'm sure i'm sure there are probably others that uh Right, I'd have to read that in more depth to figure out how it works. Yeah, I'd say uh, 500,000 devices in at least 54 countries. Right. Um, I mean, the other one at the moment that seems to be on the rise is VNC port attacks. Um, uh, Tim, yes, Tim, was talking about that (laughs) Um, on his show um, where Owen said that he found his his net-facing kind of server had been, you know, was being hammered with uh vnc port attacks but uh right well thank you for that one roger where everybody go away read the article check your router uh if you don't have a you don't have a decent password on your router set one exactly exactly don't use the default password and in this country i don't i don't know but um quite uh, a few isps uh i know that i know that bt do this they ship you a router which when you turn it on, uh, takes you into admin mode without entry and a password, and then tells you to set up a password so that nothing is shipped from the factory. You have to, and it won't let you do it unless you set up a half decent password. And- yeah, but doesn't that then send the password to the the company, or is it just, or does the router just say, okay, I now have a good password that's been generated at yes at source. It's so. Effectively, it's unprotected when it leaves the factory. When you plug it in, it then prompts you to set up your account on the on the router, your admin account, and set up your own password. Which, um, well, that would make sense. The other one, the other one is Sky. There, if you if you Sky there, all their routers come. Each one comes with its own individual kind of twenty character alphanumeric um, login. So. I'm not saying those can't be cracked because I'm sure if somebody knew, you know, could figure out the algorithm they used, but at least they're not shipped with a bog standard. You know, Netgear, I'm afraid, uh, much as I like Netgear, um, most of their routers ship with a default login of admin admin or admin password. Well, I don't think they're doing that anymore. No, maybe not, but they did for years, which was, you know, back in the days when we didn't have to worry so much about these things was, was pleasant Not enough. a big deal. Yeah, but now it, it would not be considered them. They pro- they probably don't. It's a long time since I changed my router, Roger. I'll be honest. Yeah, um, yeah. No, all the last couple of years, Netgear's all the Netgear's I've installed for clients have had a unique uh, password on them. Oh well, that's good. That's good. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, uh Roger. Well, that's a, another depressing story, really. But um, <laughs> well, it is, isn't it? It's depressing that you know we have to now we have to worry about all these Russian hackers and Chinese hackers and. Korean hackers and everybody else. I know there are hackers everywhere. It's not just those, but you know those those ones are often corporate sponsored. Um, you know, um, state sponsored. I'd say right. But say it softly. Yes, okay. <laughs> but carry a big stick. You must be familiar with that one, guy. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, Roger. Do you want to pick another one out? Well, I did see this one about uh, Google. Will uh, on Gmail will finish your sentences for you if you don't mind having what you're typing sent to their servers first okay wait wait are you trying to tell me that that google is looking in on the stuff i'm doing online 
Come on. Yeah, I've heard I've heard rumors of that happening. So this is called uh, the Smart Compose feature. Uh, uh, it's a new uh, something that was added to Gmail in a recent update, and it doesn't exactly write your message for you, but uh, uses machine learning to evaluate what you are writing, and then it suggests what to type next based on that analysis. So they're trying to read your mind basically, and they you know have plenty of data on you to help them do that. And so it's they, uh, in effect, it's it's a bit like the um, predictive text on. On right. your iPhone, then, isn't it? Because I mean, I know that only predicts words one at a time, but because uh, I'm sure we've all seen those games on Twitter where people write a you know start start of a, a sentence and then say complete this with your autocomplete. Um, no. Exactly. Which, yeah. Which... So it's not it's nothing new, but it's uh, it's just taking it one step further. Yeah, I think you know they're using their their AI, and of course their AI is in the cloud, so that's where it has to go to get analyzed before it comes back to you. Yeah. Well, of course, the truth is all, all um, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's Google or Echo or Siri or any of those things. They're all, they all have to be sent to, you know, to a server, don't they? Right. Yeah. They need the computing power of the, of the servers to uh, do what they do. Yeah. So, you know, it's one of those, if you, if you don't, um, you don't want anybody (laughs) looking at what you're typing or, or composing, you have to uh, turn those features off. Right, or, or not use Gmail. Oh, yeah, yeah, or not. <laughs> exactly. I don't use Gmail anyway. Um, well, let me see. Uh, there's, a, there's a report here from uh, Boy Genius Report saying 5G is going to make smartphones ugly again. Um, <laughs> uh, they're saying here that uh, because 5G is uh, much higher frequencies um, but with less penetrating power, um, that's going to possibly mean the return of uh, aerial nubs and the removal of uh, various types of material from i uh, you know from smartphones um not sure about that uh although it says here you know motorola's recently involved in unveiled 5g moto mod has a nub which would not have looked out of place on the 2003 flip phone um, well i mean the, a lot most of the material at least on iphones is glass so how would that affect any kind of signal that was coming into it i mean back when you know the the, the darn things are made mostly out of aluminum uh, i i could get that but with a glass back and a glass front what exactly is going to be blocking the signal uh, well, I, I think it's more that as far as it, uh, antenna efficiency, a built-in antenna is not as efficient as an external antenna. And because of the high frequencies and lower building penetration, it's going to be a real problem to, uh, you know, make a connection from anywhere like we, we pretty much can do now. Well, I think the the biggest problem isn't so much the phone as it is the buildings that we're trying to use these high-frequency sources in. Well, Yeah. So, you know, how is, how is change, you know, unless you, unless, because, you know, the, the higher the frequency, the shorter the range, essentially. So when 5G, whatever the, it turns out to be is rolled out, you're not going to see it in remote areas. You're going to see it in the big cities. So in the big cities, most likely on relatively, you know, the, the relatively tall buildings 
just like they do now, you're going to have antennas that are, you know, pumping out signals for 3G, 4G, and 5G. So whether or not, you know, they'll just have to put in as many antennas as it takes to saturate an area. You know, I think what they're going to have to do is use actually microcells inside uh, buildings, not just on top of buildings, because... uh, well, especially especially if 5G ends up replacing something like Wi-Fi, which is something else that they're kind of talking about. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's the you know, the promise of 5G is, you know, that you can eliminate your your uh, cable company as your internet uh, provider and get everything over 5G, but as you mentioned, <laughs> the uh, in, the infrastructure that's required to make it as uh effective yeah, yeah. It just anywhere it just takes a lot of hardware. And of course, all those hardware devices have to be connected with wires. Yeah. So it's not really wireless, but uh, As that, say, that's going to be a challenge. It's wire-ish. Yeah, there you go. Wire-ish. Uh, this is it. Even if the first 5G networks uh, are released early next year, it will be years until 5G networks are more common. Rolling out 5G across a broad swathe of spectrums will take more work than upgrading networks from 3 to 4G, as the wireless carriers will have to build hundreds of small cell sites everywhere. Yep. Yep. That's um, what it's going to take. Yeah. Now, the good thing about something like this in rural areas is that uh, a lot of the materials that actually block signals like this aren't really present. So you could use probably uh, a, a smaller number of cells to kind of saturate an area, and that would still be cheaper than, than you know, trying to lay out cable to all these areas. Right. So in, in that case, 5G actually would work better in a rural area than it would in an urban area. Yeah, but there still have to be a lot of infrastructure in a rural area because the range is so limited. Yeah. Sure. I mean, they'd have to put them on, you know, utility poles or, you know, something like that to get to where they need to go. I I think they'd be, I think in many ways, certainly in, in rural areas, and it's bad, it's bad enough in this country, let alone in, you know, in a huge, you know, continental mass like the U.S., I think they might be better off concentrating on rolling out 4G, you know, to rural areas where one mast could cover a, a vast area. But, of course, it's all about return on investment, isn't it? That's... Yes. And I know that your American telecoms market is a bit messed up. <laughs> we're trying We're trying to consolidate that so that we don't have that many choices. <laughs> I'm not sure that's better. <laughs> I'm not sure that's any better. Neither are we. No. Um, no, no. One choice is all we need. Right. Yeah, right. Um, definitely. That's definitely all anybody needs, isn't it? Um <laughs> somehow I'm not I'm not convinced by that. Uh right. Uh well, well one little um one a little aside to this five G is that a lot of five G is marketing hype uh yes. and not really technology. So uh you have to kind of keep that in mind that uh 5G is probably a lot more than two years away. It's probably more like oh yeah, away or because something. they haven't even really determined exactly what it is yet. I mean, right. this, when 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 the rollout started, or sorry, when the hype machine rolled out for both 3G and 4G, you know, you had different companies proclaiming that they're using 3G, they're using 4G, and then when you really look at it, yeah, that's not really compatible with one another. So it's not really a standard, is it? No, <laughs> that was also true, wasn't it? Because it wasn't actually finalized. Oh. And of course, all the, all the cell phones are going to have to be backward compatible. So they're going to 
what a, an iPhone I think has what five radios in it now. Something so, like that. Uh, yeah. If they add five G, that's probably going to be six radios for you know the foreseeable future. Yeah, but they'll still keep them thin. So. Yeah. Oh yes, right. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Um. This is only a little story, this, but this is a more cheerful, more cheerful note. Microsoft and Apple have helped build a new Braille display standard from, uh, this was on Engadget. Uh, I like stories like this because, you know, this is where you see um, technology putting to use that helps people. And, you know, and the weird thing is, you know, people talk about monopolies and all the rest of that in technology, but it really takes companies the size of Apple and Microsoft and Google to push forward on some of these standards because otherwise all you have is a lot of infighting and nothing gets done. Yeah. Uh, so uh, non-profit USB implementers forum announced a standard today. Uh, well, this was a few days ago. Um, accessibility is an increasingly important issue when it comes to technology. Um the non-profit USB Implementers Forum announced a new standard for Braille displays developed in cooperation with Microsoft, <laughs> Apple, and some other tech industry leaders. Um, the USB Human Interve- Interface Device Standard will make it easier for blind and low-vision users to use Braille displays across operating systems and hardware, removing the need for specialised or custom drivers and simplified development. There we go. Um it's nice to see traditional rivals like Apple and Microsoft working together on something as important as accessibility. And yes, that is something, I mean, Apple have always been big on accessibility, I know, but Microsoft have been working hard at it as well. And uh, it's, it's nice to see. That's what we want, those sort of things. If, right. you, you know, if you're blind or low vision and you do make use of Braille, you know, you don't want to have to have a different bloody Braille device for your iPhone and one for your computer and you know, do you? you want to just plug your Braille reader in yeah. and be able to use it? So yeah, and it's not use any old USB it's not just, keyboard. It's not just blind people, but uh, a lot of uh, older people now are getting into macular degeneration and other vision right. problems where they they can't use a keyboard. I mean, they can or function. not easily. Right. So I think it's going to be uh, a real boon to people like that. I know several people with macular degeneration that really affects their quality of life. So this would be a real a boon because they, they don't use computers because it's too difficult for them. So this could open up a whole uh, new market for those people and help them to communicate with their, their friends and family and, and the outside world. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I on this show, whenever we come across stories, you know, like that, about how uh, technology can be used to help people see again or... Um no walk again or just improve people's quality of life we're always we're always keen on those because you know we can all get wrapped up in squabbling about this and that and the other but it's nice when you see somebody working hard to turn maybe something as simple as a smartphone into a into a device that can really help somebody who's you know disadvantaged like that so and that that's i like that story it's it's nice because it's got the i'm sure there'll be other things if if they're working on that there'll be other things than braille displays what they're trying to do really isn't it is make specialized um peripherals for people with uh you know uh disabilities as easy to plug into any device as your bog standard um you know your bog standard usb keyboard or mouse you know, you don't right. have to. You don't have to have a special. You know, I mean, we tend to like our Apple keyboards, but you don't have to have an Apple keyboard. You can go down the shop and buy yourself a ten dollar USB keyboard and plug it into your Mac. In, into your Mac, you know, um, or you can use any mouse that you like. You don't have to use the magic mouse. 
um, and so on. So that, that's nice and good to see Microsoft and uh, Apple working together, working yeah. together yeah. on that, making it making it easier for those sort of things. Too. Yeah, it's amazing how these old rivalries have kind of dissolved Microsoft and Apple, and then IBM and Apple. Yes. You know, IBM has become Apple's one of Apple's uh, biggest customers for. Yes, they have. Yes, bizarrely, very bizarrely. But um, I guess it's like it's like a lot of things, isn't it? I suppose at at the start when they're all fighting for market share, now it's all kind of settled down, and you can you know they can they can look at it perhaps a little less. Uh, well, also the markets themselves have matured to the point that the the reasons why they were at each other's throats over these things just doesn't really matter anymore. Yeah. Yeah, this, exactly. you, look, you look at the fight between Apple and Samsung over over the iPhone and the iPhone design. It's like at this point, I think both companies would like it to just go away. But, you know, it, it's it's a question now of, OK, you know, can we can we just, you know, just give us a little bit of money and and, you know, we can declare victory and you can say that it wasn't, the you know, the billions of dollars that was originally uh, assessed from the uh, original trial and we both walk away and just nobody ever talks about it again. <laughs> exactly. Yes. <laughs> I've been reading that this week because they got awarded, what was it, 500, 500 million. Yeah, yeah come half on. A, a, company, a, co- yeah, a company the size of Samsung, it means nothing. A company the size of Apple, it means nothing. So, no. you know, just settle the goddamn thing and move. About, I almost said a really bad word there. Move the on. something, on. something on. Right. Yeah, move on because... Uh, I mean, now, the, the the whole thing, I mean, it goes back to, what, the original iPhone. Yeah. So. Yeah. But you know who I really feel sorry for in all of this is Bart Bouchotts. Yes. He said. He's had to talk about this this stupid issue. That story's been running on for oh, seven God. years. I know. Probably going to make ten. You know that because they're going to appeal. Yeah. Oh appeal. yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I can see it now. Bart's going to be like, okay, well, this is the this is you know, let's talk Apple show, blah blah blah, for March of 2025. And first <laughs> in the legal news, there's the latest and from the Apple Samsung blah blah blah. Yeah. Started in 2007. <laughs> <sighs> right. Um, well, no. A little, pl- little plug there for Bert's show. Yeah, which uh, I'm doing later. I'm doing later tonight. Yeah. Um, which is a brilliant show. If you guys don't don't subscribe to that, you should. Yeah, uh, that is true. Uh, I've got a couple of just a snippets here as we come towards the end of the show. Um, Mac Jim, I think, in our Slack room, posted a link to Anchor, the easiest way to start a podcast, which is... Um, an iOS, uh, do a podcast from, you know, uh, one app for free, uh, and it's called Anchor. Uh, I'd also refer people to the Spreaker uh, opinion and Ferrite right. uh, for that kind of thing. So, it's you know, it's not a, it's not a new market. There's several uh, apps out there, but uh, Anchor is a new well, ha- one. Have you ever used the Spreaker app? Have you ever looked at it, the yes, desktop app? Uh, no, no <laughs> not the desktop. I've got the iOS record a podcast. Check out, check out the, the desktop app, which looks a lot like the iOS app, but kind of on steroids. It actually is a very, very cool, and because you don't have to use the Spreaker service to use this application. You can record locally oh, on yeah. your computer yeah, you don't have to using the Spreaker app. But the app itself, as you know, with everything that it does, it, it's almost an all-in-one, you know, it, if they could actually build that out a little bit more, that could be a source of revenue for them because it's it really is an amazing little app. Yeah, I mean, I've got the I've got the um, the iOS Spreaker 
uh, right. Recording Check out studio. the desktop app. You can it's you can download it for free. And that's got um. I mean, that even comes with a little soundboard built in. Yes, it does. I'm not a huge soundboard, but you know, if you doesn't have to be. as a as a as a starter app, it's got a, a built in. Um, you know what I would love to see? I know this is completely off topic. I would love to see Rogue Amoeba buy that app from Spreaker and then build in like audio hijack or loop pack or, you know, that kind of functionality into it and create like an all in one podcasting app that you could do all of the things that we that we currently have to do with audio hijack and loopback which are two of my absolute favorite apps by the way well of course when we had uh, when we had paul kafasis on and, and talked about that as he said the trouble is when you go and um, survey people about what would they need in their all-in-one app everybody yeah, comes yeah. back with a different mix with something different yeah <laughs> a slightly different mix so you know I yeah think well would... I, I want it, I, I would want it basically to record multi-track which means that if it had loopback, you know, loopback capability, it could do that. Uh, it, it already has uh, a soundboard built yep. into it. Uh, it already has ways to have like three or four uh, different sound sources coming into it. Now, it doesn't record multi-track, but I, I can't believe that it would be that difficult to set up, especially if it's coming from a single um, audio device and whether that audio device is hardware or that audio device is something like through Loopback or, or Soundflower. Yeah, I mean, it could be done. And yeah, I think of all the companies out there, because there was an app, oh God, long, long time ago uh, called Ubercaster. I don't know if you ever heard of this. Um, I've heard of it, but um, by the time I sort of got into yeah, podcasting, I think it was dead. Yeah. 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 Uh, Apple made some change. I think it was not long afterwards. Apple came out with core audio and the, the technology that Ubercaster used was dead and it was too bad because it also, uh, its interface was kind of an amazing app. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to hijack the show like that. <laughs> That's all right. Um, well, talking about, we do a last story, I guess, um, and and talking of technologies that um, didn't quite make it. Uh, we've mentioned this before: the General Magic documentary detailing Apple spin-off that nearly changed the world. Um, Cult of Mac. We've we've mentioned this before. Um, Cult of Mac have got another story about it. It's um, currently being shown at uh, various uh, film or what festivals, I guess, or whatever they call right. it. Um, uh, and for those who don't know, uh, General Magic uh, was some ex-Apple engineers and they set out to build a fabulous new device. And uh, for a while, they were, you know, the darling of Silicon Valley and they were going to change the world. And uh, then, then they didn't. And then, it well, it all just crashed and <laughs> burned. I think the dot-com uh, boom collapsed and ruined them. Um of course, they went on, the, the guys involved in it. I mean, we are talking people like Andy Rubin and right. uh, Bill Atkinson. They, they, well, they basically went on to create Android. Uh, well, uh, and some of their well, the, early, the early version of Android, which actually did not look like an iPhone, it looked more like a BlackBerry yeah. device. Uh, um, and Tony Fidel, people like that. Um, and the technology in it went, went out and ended up in things like uh, Sony's Magic Link. I believe some of it ended up in Palm. Um, anyway, this is, this is a documentary I would really, really like to see, but at the moment it's only, uh, being shown at film festivals. So, uh, it, I'm very much hoping that it will, uh, eventually get a general release or that someone like Netflix will pick it up. 
Yeah, Netflix, I think, or actually even Apple's new TV service, whatever the hell they end up calling that, would be a a, a better better fit for it than trying to release it through. Because, I mean, honestly, documentaries typically don't really do that well in no. general release because no, no. people, for the most, if they are, unless they're absolutely interested in whatever the documentary is on, you know, and and you put out a documentary on how the, the tin can industry affects you know, tuna in Alaska. It's like, Oh, okay. I don't care. You know, yeah. or, but you know, but then if it's something that somebody is interested in, then, you know, yeah, they're going to go see it, but there's just, it's, it's too small, you know, too, too much of a niche kind of, kind of message for most of these documentaries. Probably why it's showing at film festivals, but exactly, anyway, it's a film I would very much like to see. And talking about uh, films, not drawing a, a huge audience. Uh, I took my boy to see solo yesterday afternoon. Oh yeah. How was it? I haven't seen it yet. Uh, we enjoyed it. We enjoyed it a lot. Um, probably, you know, you're not going to ever become the greatest star Wars story out there, but it's an, in- it's an enjoyable romp. Um, it's you know it's good fun um and i think there are about 20 of us in the cinema yeah well, <laughs> the weird thing is the weird thing is you know i mean they they've they talk about oh the film is a failure it's only made like two billion dollars since its release and, and i'm sorry how much did it cost to to make again was it like nowhere near two billion dollars uh, they, so they did know, actually spend a lot of money on it apparently but um they did but i mean they've already basically at the end of the first week of release they've made the money that they put into it minus maybe some of the marketing yeah. and by the time you get done with its theatrical release and however many millions of copies that it's going to sell on you know itunes and and the rest of the movie uh uh, uh, resale, you know, digital downloads, all the rest. It's it's going to make plenty of money. It's an enjoyable romp. I, it doesn't really. It, it's almost like it's a. It's a popcorn film. It's a fun film with some Star Wars bits bolted on. Um, sure. You know, it's about young Han Solo. Um, I won't tell you too much because that will spoil it. But well, that, that's you know that was pretty much everybody knows that going in. You yeah. know, you're not spoiling anything there. Um, and of course, it's about Han and the Millennium Falcon and Chewie and a few other yeah. bits and pieces. It's a it's a good romp, well worth a watch. But you know, when we went to see the Last Jedi, the cinema—I won't say the cinemas were packed, but they were certainly you know nearly full. This is 20 people um, on a Saturday afternoon. You know, that's not a lot of people. (laughs) It's doing okay, I think. There we go. Uh, Right. Well, I think we're probably nearly done with the stories, boys. Um, I've got just one thing here. Um, I mentioned them the other week. I've got these cheap cables, which I bought from from Amazon, um, from a company called, I believe it's probably Pure Idea. they're currently reduced on Amazon UK, so I don't know about Amazon US, boys, uh, but they are listed as six months free return and refund service with a 12-month warranty. Oh, lightning cables. Uh, yes, lightning cables, and they are currently selling a six a pack of five one-meter cables for £7 UK, uh, which, to be honest, most of the time, you can't buy one cable for that. Um and they have springs on the ends where the uh, where the plugs are, 
rather than plastic reinforcers, which they claim have been tested for, you know, 90 million bends or something to prevent the ends kinking. Um, okay, well, here here in the States, they've got a three-pack of six-foot cables for $9.99. Right, there you go. Uh, but they also have a pack wow. um, which consists of three one-meter and three seven-inch cables, uh, which they're selling for £5 in the UK. So uh, there you go. I thought I'd just mention those. Uh, Originally, I just I bought some on the grounds they were cheap cables uh, because they're reduced. I think the list price is twenty or forty pounds or something. What the sort of money you'd expect to pay anyway. Yeah. Um, they they also have a uh, uh, ninety degree uh, lightning cable. Yes, which they can do. Come in handy sometimes. Yes, they do. Um, they, yeah. I mean, they, ten ten bucks for what five cables? That's yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, at the minute they're on they're on special. Apparently they're severely marked down. Um, so that's why I bought them. But I did notice they've marked as having a 12-month warranty. So there we go. Worth a mention. Right. I think that's probably about it. Uh, so, Guy, would you yeah. like to do the bit where you shill yourself and your show? Oh, and- sure. Well, you can, you can reach me via email, guy at mymac.com, probably. Uh, also, guy at mttfgo.com. Uh, I do uh, a little video show, 10, 15 minutes at a stretch, though uh, I've got a bunch that I haven't released yet for various reasons that are too long to go into here, uh, called Guy's Daily Drive. You can find that over on YouTube and hopefully soon in iTunes in audio format. Wednesday nights, I do a uh, Facebook live show called Mac to the Future, which you can find, oddly enough, over there on Facebook. Okay. Oh, I'm also Mac Parrot on the Twitter. Almost forgot. <laughs> okay. Yes. Uh, Roger, over to you, mate. Chill yourself. Well, you can find me uh, almost anywhere under Go4Tech, G-O-F-O-R-T-E-C-H, on all social media. Very good. And, of course, uh, we can find your writings and contributions over at MyMac.com. It's true what you say. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, uh, I, of course, am on the Twitter as at Serenak, and that's S-E-R-E-N-A-K. The show is at Essential Apple, and uh, you can find our site, uh, EssentialApple.com. And that's pretty much it, really. Uh, I think it's time we all said goodbye. Adios. Goodbye, all. This has been the Essential Apple Podcast, and uh, I'd just like to say that uh, if you enjoy the show and would like to support us, go over to EssentialApple.com and you can take a look at the Patreon or the Pinecast Tips Jar where you can either make a single donation or you can make uh, a regular subscription. And all the money that you donate will go towards paying for the things like hosting and better microphones and such like. We promise not to spend it on beer, okay? And of course, a very special thank you to those of you who already do support the show. We really do appreciate it. Thank you very much. Uh, This show is a part of the MyMac network, along with such shows as uh, MyMac, Bart Bouchot's Let's Talk podcasts, The Geekiest Show Ever, The Tech Fan with Tim and David, The Three Geeky Ladies, 
the Nintendo Club podcast and probably a few that I've forgotten to mention. So remember, check out mymac.com for a selection of excellent podcasts. Thank you. I don't know if do we want to talk about the clamshell with laser cut flexi hinge or are we not bored or are we bored by bloody patents now? <laughs> um right, well I think we all want to take the mick out of Instapaper for pulling um pulling out of Europe because they couldn't work out GDPR oh, G- when they only had they only had two years to get ready for that. Um and then there's the GDPR. Oh, I think a lot of people just never thought it was actually gonna happen. Yeah, although <laughs> it was actually two years ago that they enacted it and said on you know, on the twenty fifth. You May, gotta be ready. You gotta be ready. And it was a year before that, I think, when they when they started talking about it. So it's probably three years. But anyway, um we'll do that one. The other one the other reason to do that is uh I'm on just mention this uh, meditation app calm with the uh, I know you're both Americans so you, you probably wouldn't be familiar with it but um, they've they've got the guy who reads the shipping forecast for radio 4 uh, reading the GDPR introduction <laughs> as, as okay. a sleep uh, as a sleep uh, aid uh, which is why it says there forties chromaty fourth time dog because he he reads it um he reads it very like forties chromaty fourth time dogger fisher German bite wind backing four six rain vision moderate like that is how he reads um oh that's how he, that's how he reads the shipping forecast anyway so you can imagine uh, they've got him reading that reading the hundred and seven pages of the GDPR introduction that's just the introduction. And then a few choice parts, apparently, of the legislation. So that's that's worth a laugh. This has been the Essential Apple Podcast. Goodbye and thank you for listening.